As we stand, let's pray. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. May your word, O God, be living and active amongst us tonight. May it judge the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. And may it speak deep into us and receive from us the response you long to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Please, will you sit? How would you define old age? Well, here are some definitions I heard recently. When you can no longer do what you want to do. Not bad. Young girl. You would have to be 20 or 30. Help. (laughs) Elderly couple. Husband says to his wife, let's go upstairs and make love. Wife replies, I can do one or the other. But not both. (laughs) So, we're looking at the last chapter of Ecclesiastes. (laughs) My husband says this gets a 12A certificate. (laughs) I'd like you to find page 677 in your Bibles. And since this is our final sermon on Ecclesiastes, we'll be thinking about how this last chapter rounds off the book. What kind of summary does it give? But then also to step back and ask, how does Ecclesiastes fit into the whole Bible? Why is it here? Well, to answer these questions, I'd like you to imagine that we're viewing Ecclesiastes through the lens of a camera. And we're going to begin with the macro lens. And here we'll examine the fine detail of the first eight verses. These are the views of someone called the teacher, who has written most of the book. Then we'll adjust our camera to the standard lens. And if you were here for the first sermon in the series, you will recall Alex telling us that the very first verse and these final verses or epilogue serve as a kind of photo frame and they enable us to see the bigger picture. They show us how we should read Ecclesiastes and place it within the teaching of the Old Testament. And then finally... Moving even further outwards, we look through the wide-angle lens and we view Ecclesiastes as part of the whole Bible. When Jesus enters the picture, we see the full perspective. You see, the detail deals with the frustrations of life here, life under the sun. But the whole Bible says, look wider, there's eternity So, let's begin with the macro lens. And I'm going to call this snapshot, life is full of trouble and then we die. Life is full of trouble and then we die. 
Well, the chapter begins, verse 1, with an exhortation. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come. These are days of trouble. When life gets increasingly difficult and worrying, And the writer says, the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. I have a vivid memory. Alan was talking of early memories. I have a vivid memory as a small child of my grandmother saying, I just want to die. Verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. Here the ageing process is compared to an approaching storm. And we're meant to feel the darkness closing in. Maybe the darkness is literal, because in old age our eyesight can become clouded. Or maybe it's an emotional darkness, because when body and mind grow weaker, we feel fearful, we feel sad about what lies ahead just as someone might feel threatened by an upcoming storm. Verse 3 then describes the reactions of various inhabitants of a household to this storm, to this aging process. Look with me. The keepers of the house tremble. These are the house guards, men of lowly station. Well, they're frightened of growing old. The strong men stoop. Here we have the landowners, men of wealth and power. But their bodies no longer stay upright and strong. The grinders cease because they are few. The word is speaking of women. Women who are no longer able to provide food for their household. Or they've given up even trying to work because all their fellow workers are dying off. And finally, those looking through the windows grow dim. These are the women of leisure whose eyesight is failing. So do you see by describing men and women, wealthy and poor, the teacher is making the point, we will all grow old. None of us will escape the process of deterioration. And for many, that will be a frightening experience. Moving on, verses 4 and 5. When the doors to the street are closed, when men are afraid of heights and dangers in the streets, I'm sure it's obvious as people get older, they go out of their homes less and less. Either they haven't the same mobility or through fear. The sound of grinding fades and all their songs grow faint because with ageing comes loss of hearing. When men rise at the sound of birds indicates a restlessness, an inability to sleep such that even a bird might cause one to wake. And then verse 5, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along and desire is no longer stirred. Three poetic descriptions of old age. The pale blossom being like white hair. The grasshopper, who was once agile, now moves with pain. And thirdly, the original Hebrew speaks of the caperberry, a well-known aphrodisiac, I'm told, which no longer has the desired effect. 
So here the writer describes in moving detail what it's like to grow old. The physical decline, the accompanying fears, the inevitability of it all. Did anyone else here watch the Horizon program this week, Don't Grow Old? Oh, you missed something good. It was fascinating. It was a look at attempts by scientists to understand exactly what is happening to our bodies as we age. And then to try and come up with a cure for aging. Well, one of the uh, so-called cures involved cutting down your calorie intake by one-third to enable you to live longer. Well, this regime was tried by a Harvard professor who said it left him feeling hungry all the time. <laughs> if this makes me live till 100, he concluded, then I don't want it. <laughs> well, neither would I. But the program highlighted the same frustration as Ecclesiastes, that as human beings, we do not have control over the aging of our bodies. And nor do we have control over their end. Last part of verse 5. Then man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about the streets. The expression here, eternal home, is not a cosy prospect of heaven. It means the grave where we will stay forever. And to make that clear, the writer, verse 6, employs several metaphors for the finality of death. The silver cord severed, the golden bowl broken, the pitcher shattered, the wheel broken. And finally, verse 7, the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Here we have a reversal of creation. In Genesis we read, we read, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Here the writer says, This unity of body and spirit is undone at death. It's all over, final, the end. And what conclusion does the teacher come to when he looks at this life which is full of trouble and then we die? Well, the same one he has come to again and again through the book. Verse 8, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So does this macro shot teach us nothing? I don't think so. For there is wisdom here, even if it's not total wisdom. Go back to verse 1. And you find the teacher's application of what you should do faced with aging and death. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. In other words, when you are more in control of how you spend your time and your energies. That's when you need to remember your God, the God who made you and to whom you owe your whole being. Remember or keep in mind or don't forget 
or make a positive choice to think about. And one of the key ways we do this is by reading and studying his word, the Bible. And briefly, I want to highlight two key disciplines that I am so glad I began when I was a student. The first one was memorizing verses from the Bible. And I'd love to encourage you, younger people, to do that. Because what happens is they come back to you time and time again. And you will reap the benefit of laying up God's word in your mind and heart. And secondly, was reading the whole Bible through. I'm not going to ask you to put up your hands, but how many of you have read the whole Bible through? Don't need to put your hands. Once, or maybe many times, some of you. Now, I read it from cover to cover and just kept going through the heavy going bits. But there are study guides which can help you. One I've been using is by Don Carson, For the Love of God. You read four chapters of the Bible approximately a day, and he provides a commentary on at least one of them, and it takes you through the whole Bible in a year. This is good stuff, and you can get it on the bookstore. Another one is John Stott, Through the Bible, Through the Year. You don't actually get to read the whole Bible, but it takes you through the sweep of what God is saying, and that's also available. So that is the macro shot. Remember your creator in the face of life is full of trouble and then you die. Well, let's zoom out a bit to the normal view. And I'm going to call this photo, Fear God and Keep His Commandments. Fear God and Keep His Commandments. And we're looking at verses 8 to 14. And this, as I said, is like an epilogue which sets all the previous 12 chapters within a bigger context. And it tells the attentive reader, step back and critique what you have read. Yes, verse 8, what the teacher says is everything is meaningless. And verse 9, the teacher was wise. And verse 10, the teacher searched to find just the right words. But is that the end of the story? Well, according to the writer of the final verses, no. Look at verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. Let's unpack this verse together. Firstly, fear God. Well, true, the teacher has said the same. In verse chapter 5, we had much dreaming and many words are meaningless, therefore stand in awe of God. But he doesn't always say it with great conviction. And the final writer wants to underline this. Fear God. And that means to respect honor and worship the Lord. What Alex described as a faith in God on his own terms. Like the teacher, we too can question, maybe should question, are invited to question the meaning of what happens in this life. But ultimately, God is God. He calls the shots. 
whether we or the teacher like them or not. And what fearing God looks like in practice is to keep his commandments. In other words, this writer is exhorting his readers to live lives according to the teachings of the Old Testament. It's almost a summary of the Old Testament message. The people God made are to live in the ways God gave. For this is the whole of man. You could translate this, it's the most important thing a person can do. Or even more basic, it's what we were made for. I'm going to give you a quick aside because commandments can strike the modern ear as a very negative word. It's like a list of rules, we think, from God saying what you can't do and designed just to keep us in a narrow line. But I've come to realize that God is like the most loving parent and he sets clear boundaries for his children because he doesn't want us to get hurt and he doesn't want us to damage other people and he doesn't want us to move out of relationship with him. So think of it a bit like the camera manual. You can take shots without it but reading the manual will show you how it was designed to take the best shots. Okay, that was an aside. So the normal photo, the Old Testament perspective, if you like, is fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole of men. That word whole speaks of our being fulfilled and integrated as human beings, and it's a far cry from the teacher's meaningless. Furthermore, everything is not meaningless because, verse 14, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. If every deed is going to be judged in the future, every deed, then that must mean that everything which happens now in these years full of trouble, does matter. So, if you are a victim who has been appallingly treated and the perpetrators seem to have got away with their evil deeds, they haven't. God will judge them. That is good news. And where maybe you or others have shown acts of kindness and no one has apparently noticed, God has. He will be the judge of those actions. And that's good news. But it is God and not us who will make those judgments. He will do so with absolute justice and he will do so with every single aspect laid bare. And therein lies both good news and challenge. Will we be ready to face him? The final writer of Ecclesiastes leaves the question hanging and unspoken. So macro shot. Life is full of trouble and then we die. Normal view. 
Fear God and keep his commandments. Finally, the wide angle shot. God will judge everyone by Jesus Christ. God will judge everyone by Jesus Christ. For the teacher, death is the end. For the writer of Ecclesiastes, judgment will come afterwards. But it takes the New Testament finally to give us proof that death is not the end because Jesus died on the cross and then came back to life again. And now he lives for all eternity. And Jesus promised that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So does that mean that we as believers will escape judgment? Well, yes and no. Yes, we do stand forgiven at the cross. We will escape the eternal judgment, which is separation from God forever. Because Jesus promised, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. We ourselves will be saved through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. But no, our deeds will be judged. How we have lived our lives will still be judged. And helpful if you could turn quickly on to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's 1146 in your Bibles. 1146. Verse 11. Paul tells us the only foundation that will last is Jesus Christ. But some will build lives on that foundation using gold and silver. In other words, they will do things that are of eternal value. And others will build with hay and straw, and these are things that will not last. Verse 13, there will come a final day of judgment. And on that day, the quality of each person's work will be tested. And verse 14, if what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through flames. As the writer of Ecclesiastes told us, it does matter how we live, for every deed will be judged. And now in the light of Jesus' resurrection, we know there is certainty of eternal life for those who believe. And along with it will be eternal rewards and losses. So in conclusion, taking our three shots... It seems to me the teacher of Ecclesiastes invites us to think, how would life appear with little or no reference to God? The writer of Ecclesiastes challenges us to live in a right relationship with God. 
And Jesus says we can only do that through him. But what counts now is what we do today. While there is still time, will we believe in Jesus Christ and so gain eternal life? And having believed, will we choose to spend the time that we have, however short or long it will be, building such things as will last for eternity? Let's pray. Just a moment of silence where I allow you to ask the Spirit of God to search your own heart. None of us know how long we have, what the days are that are numbered for us, but we have now and we have today. And let's just make our own response before God, how we are going to use now and today. Creator God, you made us, you know us, and you love us. We pray that you would enable us to keep the words that we have made to you this evening. And by your grace, may we live lives that will build for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.